Hi, everyone. This is Michael Cox for the In Common Podcast. In this episode, I spoke with one of my intellectual heroes, Dr. Steve Lansing. Steve is an external professor at the Santa Fe Institute and the Vienna Complexity Hub, and emeritus professor of anthropology at the University of Arizona, and a senior research fellow at the Stockholm Resilience Center. Steve has written several books about the Subak irrigation systems in Bali. One of these, entitled Perfect Order, Recognizing Complexity in Bali, stands to me as one of the best interdisciplinary socio-ecological analyses that has ever been written, and I often assign it to my students in my environmental policy class. We talked about Steve's work with the Balinese Subaks, including his understanding of their water use and management practices that are mediated by their water-based religion. We also discussed the effects that Green Revolution techniques and technologies had on the Subaks, and how local actors responded to this disturbance to their traditions, as well as Steve's own role in these responses. We also talked about Steve's more recent work in Bali, which includes an experiment to examine whether the Subak farmers can use less water by flooding their paddies less, and thereby reduce methane emissions while actually producing more rice. The subject of polycentricity came up several times during our conversation, and Steve concluded our chat by telling me about a fascinating and inspiring story of large-scale, polycentric, intergroup cooperation among a network of forest user groups in Borneo. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Steve Lansing. Um, okay, well, so let's get started. I'm, okay. as, as I said, Steve, I'm super excited. I, I don't think it's um, an exaggeration to say that I've been a fanboy of your work for a very long time. Oh. I read Priest and Programmers in grad school, and later on I read um, Perfect Order, both about the Balinese Subak systems. I, I'm trying to remember when exactly I read Priest and Programmers, mm-hmm. and there's several connections here to just throw out there. You know, so my dissertation work was on the irrigation system, the Aseki irrigation systems in northern New Mexico. So my study site was in Taos, New Mexico. Uh-huh. And I read your work around about, about the time that I was trying to develop my own dissertation kind of mini research program, right? What are my questions? And a lot of it had to do with bottom-up versus top-down governance, which, in, of course, in the commons and governance communities, we think about a lot. And, of course, your work is very relevant for those questions, building on Whitfogle and Geertz and those other folks and, and your exploration of this kind of the, the, this bottom-up order that comes out of these Balinese subaks. And... I remember talking to a woman named Silvia Rodriguez, who is a professor at University of New Mexico. And she said, well, I don't think yeah. the Asekis are quite like the Subaks. They don't have the religion. There's religion there, but it's not playing this like very prominent, interesting role that it plays in the Subaks. So, yeah. but your work was inspirational to me going back to when I first started to, you know, try to be a researcher. Um, it was this very interesting um, case for me to, to use as inspiration for my own work. And for me, and I, st- I mentioned to you in the emails that we sent back and forth a bit for this interview, I used the Perfect Order book as one of the main cases, main case studies in my main policy class. Oh. The students really like it. There's just multiple lessons in there, which I, I'd like to kind of tease out um, today for the listeners. Okay. Um, 
So one other connection to mention is I know you've been at several different institutions and you've been associated with the Santa Fe Institute for a long time. Yes. As I never remember the, the exact um, wording of these titles, but something like an external research professor. Well, I was on the like on site regular faculty for six years or something. And then I've been external faculty since then. So okay. back and forth. Yeah. Okay, so I, I guess I forgot that, that you were you were in Santa Fe for six years. Yeah, like half time. Uh, okay. okay, half time there, half time in Indonesia. Okay, so I went to the Santa Fe uh, uh, Santa Fe Institute Complex Systems Summer School actually, oh. which was my first exposure to things like NetLogo and Chaos and Emergence, which was actually like a nice. It was very synergistic with reading some of the more complexity oriented aspects of your work. Which is something else I want to talk to you about because it's we are, we're very interested here in interdisciplinarity, which gets a lot of press, but not always a lot of implementation. Mm -hmm. And that's something I think we also see in your work and at the Santa Fe Institute. So with this preamble, the first question I have for you, Steve, is, and there's a name for this question now, it's the origin story question. Mm. Um derived in my own head from superhero movies where right spider-man gets bitten by a spider and suddenly he's spider-man which before he wasn't so we all have a version of becoming someone who we weren't before yeah. although it's always based in part or i i think it's based in part on who we we used to be when you make sense of you know your path to academia your path to studying the balinese subaks how do you make sense of it what led you for example to pursue a PhD and the academic career path in the first place, for example? Well, I, I had the good fortune to go to Bali as a junior in college for like six months. And uh, at that time, I thought I was going to study physics, but I realized I wasn't going to be much of a physicist. And then it was like just dropped into this incredible world. And I, by the by very good fortune, a wonderful anthropologist named Phil McKean who was there, got me situated in the house of the last great court poet of Bali, Itapadanda Made. And so I was able, and one of his like main disciples became my teacher. So I fell with my nose in the butter, as the Dutch say, and uh, spent six months there and came back and wrote, a, wrote about it and then seized the opportunity to go to graduate school in anthropology, which I hadn't studied before, but it looked interesting. And so it, it just got more and more interesting, really. I mean, I, one topic led to the next, and it has kept me, uh, that, that story hasn't ended yet. So it was a wonderful choice. Mm. During those six months, I'm just trying to imagine it, and I kind of imagine the place. Mm. Can you just describe for listeners what it was like to be there and what it meant to immerse yourself? Like, what were the kind of physical and cultural experiences that drew you in initially? Well, I, I was in a seaside village and I hadn't really had any anthropology. I just, I'd had a quick tutorial from a, a gamelan instructor and I'd read all I could, Margaret Mead and Gregory Bates and all the wonderful rich literature on Bali. And so thanks to Phil McKean, I found myself in a Brahmin household, a short walk from the beach um, with very little Malay, very little Indonesian but uh, great curiosity. So I worked with uh, 
And then at that time, he was called Ida Bagusudiasta, who had worked with a French anthropologist, Louis Berg, uh, before me. And uh, so we kind of, you know, got along with a little French, a little Malay, a little English. And I was, at, uh, Bani's compound is especially a Brahmana compound. People are coming in and out all the time, having offerings made, coming and asking questions. And um, the great court poet and Brahmin priest was there. He was this, he had gone, he'd undergone the, the rituals of death and rebirth that allow you to become a Brahmana high priest. And he was in, in a wonderfully revered figure. And I'd read about him in a book called uh, Catherine Mirshan, because she was a dancer who'd been in Bali years before and knew him as a young man. Anyway, so I, I just became, uh, my days were spent trying to learn language as fast as I could and just kind of following around and seeing what happened and then going with the young son of the, one of the guys, the, the, the priest's son, spearfishing on the reef back when that was possible. So it was, a, it was just an idyllic, wonderful existence. Um, I was very fortunate. Mm. And to clarify, so the, the Brahmin is a level of, it's a high level in the caste system? Yeah. Okay. The Balinese have their own version of the caste system. And uh, the most, it's very important to them. It's, there are, there's, no, there's no untouchable class, which is very nice. But there are the Primanksa, the upper caste, and then the Sudras, which is basically everybody else like me. And the Balinese language is structured with registers so that when you meet someone new, you, you find out what their caste is, and then you adjust your vocabulary depending upon your relative caste position. Since I was uh, without caste or really low caste by definition, I learned high Balinese as fast as I could so that I could be polite to everybody because by speaking in that way, you are doing, you're honoring them. So that was a good choice too. Okay. And so, Steve, do you, you, you went and got your PhD. Was your dissertation also, did, for, in grad school, um, you went back to Bali to study the Subaks as well? Mm, yeah, I did, yes. Okay. Uh, I was able to spend a year and a half. And then I got a telegram one day uh, from Clifford Geertz inviting me to the Institute for Advanced Study. So that was a very, I, I said yes <laughs> and showed up. And I showed up in Princeton just you know, like right off the plane really from New York and met Cliff Geertz and said, I, I was honored to become his assistant. And he said, thank you very much. And in fact, he didn't really expect he'd need a lot of assistance, but he'd be happy to help me. So, so I had an office next to him and uh, learned something about becoming an anthropologist from that wonderful man. Yeah, I'd actually love to hear a little more about that. I mean, I know that Clifford Geertz is you know, a giant in the field of anthropology, cultural anthropology, mm. um, less well known in the in the kind of fuzzy boundary commons space. Could yeah. you just describe what it was like to work with him, or what were some of the lessons that you you remember learning from him? Well, he was working on a book which he published just about the time I was there. It was published in 1980 called Nagara, the Balinese Theater State in the 19th century. And he'd gone back through the Dutch records and he was trying to figure out how the Balinese social system worked, the governance structures. And he invented the concept of the theater state, partly borrowed from Stanley Tambaya. And what it said is that ritual was not just an add-on, it's actually intrinsic to the operations of, of the Balinese state. Balinese state was polycentric. There are lots of little feudalities and uh, 
they in those in that world the articulation of ritual connections cosmological ideas was was not peripheral it was very important and through that i began through cliff i, I learned something about the suvox which according to clifford Geertz, had been an Basically, the whole productive system, the main productive system of Bali, had been organized by sutras, by ordinary people, as autonomous collectives, right, as systems of commons management, and that the state had had very little to do with it other than collecting taxes. So this was a very controversial claim when he made it, and I got interested in the Subax. My story is I got very interested in the Subax because um, they were under threat at that time by the Green Revolution. So there was a big controversy going on in Bali about what is the relationship of, how, how do the Subox actually work? And should we just set them aside? Is there, should we just kind of, kind of go on performing our rituals, but, but uh, treat this as a more practical matter, the, um, setting aside the whole ritual apparatus? The answer to that was emphatically no, long story there. But so I got very interested because what Cliff had been writing, looking essentially at the Dutch historical literature, the descriptions of Balinese states by colonial civil servants and scholars. And what I was seeing on the ground uh, was utterly fascinating. And so that gave me the questions to, to pursue because it was in a way it was, it was the people that I, by then I'd spent, my Indonesian and my Balinese were a lot better by then I could talk to people. They were struggling with the Green Revolution. The problems are interesting, and they were deeply interesting to the people that I was living with, um, you know, in the in, in the rice fields around Sukawati, South Bali. So, so Cliff really set me on a path that has kept me going now for decades. His curiosity. I mean, what I thought was extraordinary about him. He looked. He he looked at Balinese time. Wonderful little known paper about. Balinese calendar is the most complex known to anthropology. It has all these multiple cycles. How does it work? Why do they pay attention to lunisolar calendars and then this permutational calendar of you know concurrent weeks of different links? What's all that about? So uh, he he put those questions and took a kind of a phenomenological approach, right? Saying, well, so what does where do the ideas of cyclical interlocking cycles? In Balinese time, how do they? What do they mean to Balinese in different areas of their lives? So that was a great way, I think, to to frame a question. To me, I'd studied a little bit of phenomenology earlier, and I like the idea of being absolutely open-ended, looking for the phenomenology of experience in what I would see, rather than preconceived ideas about testing a theory. You know, I wanted to find out what the Balinese thought. Cliff showed me how you could do that. Okay, so Steve, for someone who hasn't engaged with the word before, a phenomenological approach, maybe I said that right, it's yes. initially it sounds like it's, it's being more bottom up in your own theorizing and not coming in with hypotheses that you want to test. Is that in the right direction? It is, but it, there is a very simple, it's a wonderful, complicated German tradition in philosophy. But what I took from it was some very simple ideas. So this goes back to Edmund Husserl, German, great German philosopher early part of the 20th century, and his disciples, especially Maurice Ponty, lots of other people in between. The idea is you observe the world and you make models of the phenomenology of perception. You set aside ontology, meaning you, you, set a, you just set aside the question of what's real 
and you can talk about gods and spirits as easily as you can talk about nitrogen. I mean, you, mm. you just try to see how does the mind perceive and what structures of thinking are involved in the apperception of the world. So there's basically two ideas, <laughs> noesis and noema, any sense perception. Come, part of it comes from what you bring, what your mind brings to it, what the noose, what your mind brings to that perception. Part of it is what's already embedded in that object, which is culturally, anthropologists would say, which is culturally embedded, has a symbolic meaning. <clears throat> so it's the interplay between those two things that is the subject matter for, this is my version of what a phenomenological approach is in anthropology. Uh, and it, it's almost, it's kind of like a description of what after field workers mostly do anyway, if they're willing to set aside their preconceptions and try to understand what they're seeing, we almost, it, that is what anthropologists do, that people who do only statistical result of studies, for example, don't do. I mean, we're, we, we wanna know what's different about their theories, of, their ideas about time and how they manifest, for example. Husserl wrote a book about phenomenology of internal time consciousness. Right. I mean, they, the phenomenologists went in deep, deep details, deep dives into those kinds of cycles. I just was interested in how different are the, how, you know, can the world be put together differently on the other side of the world mm. in a Balinese world? Okay. So it sounds like one of the things that um, Clifford Geertz helped sensitize you to is the, the potential, like, well, I'll put this in my own language, I guess, functional roles that these, Balinese religious institutions play that were illegible or invisible to external actors, which I can't I channel um, James Scott probably in almost every episode of this podcast um, mm -hmm. reminds me of an, an argument he makes in seeing like a state where this is one this typifies centralized governance that it it doesn't it tries to make its target populations legible to itself, whether ecological or, or social, and it doesn't do well with informal um, property rights and institutions and ecologies. So when I, you know, when I look at your work, a, a central part of it does seem to be this, and also relates to the Green Revolution intervention, which you mentioned, which I'd, I'd like to talk a little bit more about, right? But mm -hmm. one of the challenges there seem to be that all of these rituals, religious or not, um, were essentially invisible to external actors and dismissed as being frivolous, frivolous, non-functional, kind of a, an extra appendage, an extra social appendage um, that didn't have uh, cultural or functional value. And yeah, go ahead. Well, that, that maybe is too strong. I think okay. I'd put it slightly differently. Uh, the, Bali was conquered by the Dutch. One of the prizes for a Dutch colonial civil servant who'd risen in his profession was to get assigned to Bali. And they got ahead by publishing like we do. So some very bright people were the colonial officials, some of them in, in Bali, and they were there for years. So they mm -hmm. did wonderful ethnographies. And uh, if you're in Bali, then you have to be interested in, I mean, religion permeates the world. So what to make of that? Um, and they wrote about it, they translated, they did philology, they did a lot of kind of basic groundwork on how the symbolic system works. So that was great. What, uh, what caught my attention, and which is kind of germane to this point, is when the Green Revolution happened in Bali, and the Balinese were instructed to set aside the ritual apparatus of their water temples and the whole cultivation system, and simply plant as fast as possible, so as to grow more rice, 
Um, you know, it's okay to have temple rituals and thank the rice goddess, but you should you should just plant as fast as you can. So that happened and the Balinese did it. And the reason I think is the functional significance of many of their rituals were not obvious to them either, right? This is the way things had evolved through a process of trial and error in many villages over many decades and centuries. And so it was brought into sharp focus by being taken offline. In other words, when they stopped doing that, then you could see all kinds of, func the functional reasons became, became very apparent to them. Right, to them, not so much. I don't fault the external observers. How would they ever have made sense of this? But the Balinese themselves learned. I mean, they studied it. I had Balinese colleagues in the university there who were, went about trying to understand what, what are the reasons for the environmental problems that are, that are happening now triggered by the Green Revolution? What exactly went wrong? And what did we get right? Why did it happen now? So, um, yeah, so, that, and that's, that's Again, the phenomenological approach is relevant to that. Say, so, well, let's stop and look at what actually happened. Let's look at the, the, the cognized reality of the farmers and what they think they're doing. Hmm. That's how I approach the question. Okay. I mean, that reminds me of a point I've heard from Pete Richardson and Robert Boyd in their study of cultural evolution that folks in a community often are unaware of the ways in which their culture might be adaptive. Because yeah. in a way, the knowledge is collectively held. It's not within one brain. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Mm. Yeah. Um, can we dig in a bit more into this relationship between the Green Revolution intervention and what the Balinese Subaks had been doing? This is one of my favorite parts of the Perfect Order book. And I'd, I'd like listeners to just get to be able to appreciate it as well. well thank you. So yeah. there's... Go ahead, please. Yeah, well, so there's, you know, there's a problem that the subacs are facing, like any irrigation chase, like any irrigation system faces, right? It's the upstream downstream conflict, and mm -hmm. it's not, and it's an asymmetric game if you want to think about it that way. There are participants here, but the upstream actors have more. They're, they're in a better position because they can't be harmed by the actions of the downstream actors. And that makes it harder to facilitate cooperation, right? It's different from other resource situations. And it's this asymmetry, I think, is very generalizable, right? Like, why, is, why do future generations have it hard? It's because there's a kind of temporal asymmetry where they can't affect us, but we can affect the welfare of future generations. So I think this is a really powerful way to think about a lot of our problems. And so the Subaks are facing this. And to me, this is like one of the most interesting social ecological analyses I've ever read. And so I really, I, I just want listeners to get it. What the Subaks evolved was a solution to this problem that itself was based on a fit with the local ecology. Yeah. Could you talk about that? Yeah. I've tried to explain this quite a few times. And so let me, let me see if I can do it clearly. So as you say, the thing about irrigation systems is that the upstream farmer always has control of the flow of water to the downstream farmer. And so new irrigation projects often fail because the thing can wrap up the downstream farmer is at the mercy, if you like, of the upstream farmer. So that isn't entirely true in Bali. The reason is water is used by the Balinese also to control pests, to manage pests. The way they do that is they schedule planting as a synchronous process over a sufficiently large area. In other words, everybody plants at the same time. 
then they will harvest at the same time. Then they can flood their fields and deprive the pests of their habitat, of their food. Now that'll work if a large enough area goes fallow, right, at the same time. Otherwise the pests can move to another field. So you need to have a kind of a bargain in which a large area follows the same irrigation schedule, which means they're all gonna need a lot of water at the same time. Um, and that works against the idea of optimal sharing of the water, which would be optimized by having people plan at different times. So SUBOC meetings have to make decisions about what schedule of irrigation they're gonna follow both within the SUBOC and with other SUBOCs so as to maximize the trade-off between those two constraints. One is plant as fast as you can, excuse me, <laughs> plant at different times so you can divvy up the water. And the other is plant at the same time so that the pests will have nothing to eat, creating a very large fallow period. So my colleague, Jim Kramer and I studied that by modeling irrigation systems to rivers in Bali and um, finding out what the harvests were and what are the size units that, that follow that, uh, these patterns. And uh, lo and behold, it turned out that balancing those two constraints generates a, a pattern of irrigation from the upstream down to the ocean, these subox, which looks very much like the actual pattern that we saw in the fields. So since then, we've, we've confirmed that in, in many ways. Um, and in fact, we've built new models which show that if you allow farmers, you just kind of create a very simple little model like a lattice and you put farmers in it and you allow them to grow rice you know, water flows, rice grows, pests move around. And then at the end of the year, each farmer chooses the optimal cropping pattern, the optimal irrigation schedule of themselves or their four closest neighbors. So what happens is you let this thing go and initially by chance it's, well, initially it's chaotic. Everybody's planning at a different time. But if you've got a, like a cluster of three farmers who are planting at the same time, they'll, be, they'll have fewer pests right, fewer pests in their fields. So over time, this little simulation will evolve and larger and larger patches will come into existence, which is bringing the pest constraint down. But at a certain point, they get to be too big. So then you hit an interesting balance, right, where you're dividing the water and you're also controlling the pests with fallow. But interestingly, if you continue to let the simulation run, something really strange and kind of wonderful happens. They don't just stop at that phase of having kind of equal size patches everywhere. Instead, some patches grow quite large and others stay small. The majority of them are small. The, uh, they have a few very large patches, some medium patches and more large ones. The thing about that is that's a well-known process in, um, in physics. That's the pattern that we see in magnetism. When you create a magnet by um, lowering the temperature, so you take a take something some some magnetic magnetic thing with magnetic dipoles, and if it's very hot, then they'll all be flumping up and down, up and down. But as you lower the temperature, they start to align with their neighbors, and at a certain point called the critical point, they will um, become magnetic. And at that point, there's a balance between the tendency to do the same thing as your neighbor versus the global constraint of magnetism, which is pulling them apart. If you continue, if you run that process, you find a pattern that emerges that looks exactly, almost exactly like the patterns that we see when we turn our cameras, the satellite imagery 
uh, from uh, South Bali, we look at different patches where the farmers are growing rice, and that's what they've discovered. So you can, in other words, the punchline is you, if you run a simulation within five, six, seven years, you evolve a pattern of control, which goes from local to a global pattern. It's not every little group doing the same thing, but rather the whole thing. Control shifts basically to the global pattern. And once that happens, it stays. I mean, it, we looked at 13 out of 13 cases and found exactly that phenomenon occurring. So there's a very simple process by which ad adaptation, just local adaptation, will take them to a solution to the problem of sharing water and controlling pests. And that happens over and over again. So that was interesting because it uh, says, okay, so there, there's a dynamic to irrigation that we can spot with, um, with satellite imagery. We're now looking at other places because it took me a long time to figure this out. <laughs> Initially in Bali, you have to put the anthropologist in that. But now that we know that that'll occur, you can look at sort of the mosaic pattern of irrigation systems in other parts of Asia and say, well, do we see lots of uniform patches? Do we see chaos? Do we see some big and some little? What do we see? Those will be the signature, the visible signature of the decisions that the farmers are making to synchronize irrigation with each other, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, so we, I, I believe that we will find quite similar patterns elsewhere. We're beginning to look, okay. and, it, and that, anyway, that, that's a long answer to your question. But uh, mm. okay, um, so there are multiple branches that I want to take from here. I mean, one observation I want to make is that this dynamic reminds me of this term I've heard. Maybe it's from international relations called issue linkage. The idea being that. If we connect different issues, that can actually help promote cooperation. And I think that's what we're seeing here. We've got this initial challenge of cooperation posed by the interdependence of water use. But if we connect that to the interdependence produced by the pest population, that actually helps us cooperate with respect to water as well. Right. So by linking those issues, we're actually helping promote. And, and it's interesting, right? Because individually, they're both like a problem. Right. But if you put them right. together, um, something better can come out of it. Yeah. Well, we, I mean, we tested this idea by asking farmers, we did a survey, 15 Subox, Subox being the community scale irrigation systems. So we asked the farmers, which is worse, water shortages or pest damage? And, and we load and we divided the survey into farmers located at the upstream and downstream realm of their, of their fields. So the answer was the upstream farmers worry more about pests and the downstream farmers worry more about water shortages. So there's the makings of a bargain. In other words, this very simple model, a very simple model is enough to explain that, that trade-off. Um, yeah, I mean, honestly, Steve, that was one of my favorite parts about this, I mean, the book Perfect Order is that you, you kind of go back and forth between different types of discourse and evidence. There's the kind of more philosophical references to Foucault and Hegel, which I was actually a philosophy major in undergrad. So it's, it's, it's vaguely familiar, some of that, and kind of get some old neurons chugging again. And then you get into the modeling. There's some, some cultural history there. And then there's a survey to be, you know, and in, in going back and forth between these, I just, to me, that's like, that is the standard we want to reach for like an, for what you could call a social ecological case study. Um, I'm throwing that out there as basically a compliment. 
Well, thank you very much. Thank you. It, it seems like the right way to do it. I mean, if you don't, you, you need to start with an open-ended empirical investigation, but then you'd like to be able to test it, right? To see if yep. I mean, <clears throat> price and tests are complicated things and there could be more parameters involved. Turns out it's very simple. Mm. It didn't have to be that way. So can we finish the story of, um, I guess the story of the Green Revolution. So there's there was these initial intervention and the two pieces of it that I remember are the, the disruption of the following system to maximize the number of seasons, a very productivist approach. And that's the one we've been talking about. And then there were these technology packets as well. And what I recall is that subsequent to your work, um, there was a movement to have the Subax recognized as a UNESCO heritage site, and this was ultimately successful. Could you? And so, I feel like in we in the commons field in environmental studies, we have a lot of examples of case studies where things are going badly. Mm. And in my mind, this has been a nice counterexample where there was a mistake made, and it was rectified. Is that correct? Yes, it was it was rectified, and UNESCO did. There were four attempts to create a UNESCO World Heritage in Bali that failed, and I got involved in the fifth one when they said, "Okay." UNESCO came back to to the Indonesian government and said, "We really like the Subak system. Could you maybe focus your next nomination of Bali on the Subak system?" So we did, and we featured in particular the kinds of dynamics I've just been talking about. And uh, in the end, UNESCO agreed. So now we have a World Heritage Cultural Landscape of Bali focused on the Subaks and water temples. 22 Subaks are included in it, and then several water temples that are key to the management of the, of the, uh, of the World Heritage. Mm. So yeah, I, I like to think of that as pe people in Bali were pretty happy. You know, we have nice big plaques, right, from UNESCO saying, this, look, right. look, it has outstanding universal value. That's what, that's what, uh, UNESCO said, so people are proud of that. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it, it sounds from the outside like quite an accomplishment. And my understanding is that as a part of that, or maybe prior to it, practices were returned to the way they were. Yeah. So they kind of reversed the Green Revolution intervention. Yeah. It, in the nick of time, we were able to show that there was uh, the functional significance of allowing the water temple system to, to work. I mean, we, we, we created this computer model that showed that it optimized rice production. And we also showed that if you want to duplicate the conditions of the green revolution, run it backward, run the model backwards, you create chaos and you have the problems that happen in the green revolution. Mm -hmm. So that, that, that was persuasive to the Asian development bank. Right. And it's, it's, yeah, go ahead. That's all. I mean, that, that we, we, they, they had, they'd been sending inspection teams to see what was going wrong. And that, that argument worked. I mean, it's powerful, right? Because you can imagine it going the other way. I remember in, I think in a video um, of one of your talks about this, there's a, well, it depicts essentially pesticide application. And you could imagine this going the way of the pesticide treadmill in the long run, right? Right. Oh, we have more pests, right, well, let's better. apply more pesticides. And so we get more pests, let's apply more pesticides, et cetera. And then that's a whole different path that we can get stuck on, right? which many places are stuck on. Well, that's what was happening in Bali when we mm. were able to go back to the water temple system. Yeah. Um, just to mention it briefly, because I also think it's an interesting example. We talk about ecological fit a lot. And 
my understanding of this other element that has to do with these technology packets is that they were actually leading to eutrophication, that because of the naturally nutrient-rich volcanic soil, they didn't need all the nutrients that were being applied to them, which led to downstream eutrophication. Do I have that right? Right, yeah. The, the, the farmers, the Green Revolution involved providing the farmers with what they call technology packets consisting of the rice varieties they wanted the farmers to plant and all, all the fertilizer that was needed. They would just deliver these things to the villages and the farmers wouldn't pay. Instead, they'd pay, they'd pay back the government uh, based upon the, the sale of their rice crop. And it was obligatory to use them. So the problem with that was they used far too much nitrogen and too much phosphate. We studied that thoroughly. And one of the consequences was to look at the flow of, you could look, you can measuring nitrogen flowing down the streams. Balani's student of mine got his PhD looking at what happens as it flows down the stream. This is from, this is from urea fertilizer, which has a different isotopic signature. It has a fingerprint. You can see that it's different from natural sources and especially from marine sources. So what we discovered is that um, there are algae blanketing coral reefs around the agricultural drainages where the water flows down and that algae is growing with urea. So in other words, the farmers are spending their money to buy urea, excess urea that they don't need, which is winding up blanketing the reefs. So that was just a mistake, but that's mostly been corrected now. There's been a big movement now back to going back to organic organic farming. So those problems have those problems have been solved. There's another there's a new problem which I can tell you about presently, maybe later. Um, sure, if you want to mention yes. now or do you want you want to save it or well maybe I'll uh, yeah very quickly what we've been doing for the last three years is looking at methane emissions and nitrous oxide emissions from the rice paddies. Mm -hmm. And the problem is methane emissions from rice agriculture are one of the main sources of methane emissions. Um, and what to do about that because people need rice. So what we've done is we've measured, we took a wonderful gas and we, we've analyzed the emissions in two side-by-side -side plots. One of them flooded rice in the traditional way, the other with adapted intermittent flooding with much less water. And um, the result of that, by having less time submerged 70% reduction in methane emissions and almost no emissions of nitrous oxide. And they grew more rice. Mm. The reason is rice is not an aquatic plant. So if you have a field that isn't flooded with the water slowly washing the fertilizer away and the plant is no longer struggling to you know, get up above the water surface, then we get about 25% more rice, which was fabulous news. So we repeated that three times and now we're in the process of uh, setting up a new study in Java and in Bali to see if this system can propagate. We, we, don't, we want to avoid the problem, the top-down uh, uh, fiat that everybody has to switch immediately to adaptive intermediate irrigation. That's likely to cause problems just like the Green Revolution. But if mm -hmm. you allow people to go by trial and error and imitate their neighbors, and solve this sequentially, then it should work. In our computer models, it works fine. So what we want to do is now go out in Java and in Bali and see if that method can propagate, greatly reducing greenhouse gas emissions and also producing more rice. So we're very happy about that. Yeah, that's really, it's really interesting. It, it, I mean, there's a similar discourse. So I've been doing field work in the Dominican Republic for a while on both fisheries and irrigation systems there, and it's all rice, it's monoculture rice. Uh -huh. 
And the local NGO I've been working with there has this hypothesis that the farmers don't actually need to flood their fields nearly as much as they do. Uh-huh. Um, which makes you kind of wonder how they got to do that in the first place. And that system, it's, it's not an old system. It's the irrigation systems have only been there for like 20 years based on Europe. Like they got some uh-huh. European funding after the agrarian reform. Uh-huh. Um, so it's not a system based on, you know, local traditional knowledge or anything like that, the way we might conceive of it. Um, okay, so we have this understanding of this system, and I think that there is a temptation to view it as some kind of ideal. And again, another thing that I like you doing, that another thing in your work that I like is the... Well, the only word that's occurring to me is complexification of this picture, right? Because it's tempting to think, okay, particularly as someone who's in the commons field, we study community-based natural resource management. We're very much into bottom-up solutions. We're used to vilifying top-down approaches. And so in a way, right, um, our natural inclination is to respond very positively to your story and to this case and think, okay, if we can only all be like the Balinese Subaks. And I think another lesson, again, primarily drawing from the Perfect Order book, which I've read more recently, is that things are, of course, more complicated than this. There are politics. There are winners and losers. It's not just everyone's happy together. Right. Um, and so I'd love to hear you talk more about that. I know that there's the caste system there, and there's this question of, that you talk about this, you know, the caste system creates a hierarchy. In, and so there's a question of, does that create conflict? And if so, does that conflict impact the cooperation around water? And as you've explored that specific um, question, what is, what have been the answers that you found? So we just published a paper in International Journal of the Commons called averting evolutionary suicide. And the method might be interesting to someone listening to this podcast. So what we did was to take, create a nice, rich survey, a bunch of questions asking farmers about conditions in their fields, conditions in their subak. What's, what, are, what are the ecological problems and good things? And what about getting along? And how about, do people follow the rules? Do they, do they feel free to, to express their opinions? How often are fines in, uh, uh, imposed on one another, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a big broad brush survey. And out we went and, uh, and we did this with about 25 farmers in each of 20 subarks scattered kind of randomly around the island. And what we found is that there are three very different patterns. One, in one of them, if you look at like the, the, inter, the correlations of these responses, happy subarks, 16 happy subarks, which basically get everything right. But then there are two outliers. One is a group that's having problems with environmental issues and another outlier having problems with social issues, which have to do with caste. So in, the, in this paper, what we do is to say, okay, now we can take those, those results and ask first with Fisher information, how confident are we that we've got the right answer? How, how, how much do we have enough data to really say this? And secondly, if there were gonna be a path leading from 
uh, Subox with problems to Subox with solution or vice versa, what would be the most likely path? In other words, which of these variables or combinations of variables would dominate those kinds of transitions? So that falls off very nicely into place too. So I think that's a method. You see, I, I've spent a lot of time studying Subox, but this was, I didn't study 20 of them at the same time. This is just a simple way to go about asking fundamental questions and then looking to see what kinds of patterns emerge. So um, from now on, when I teach, I'm going to urge, I'm trying to, I've got, I'm now trying to teach that in the occasions when I'm given a chance, right, mm. as a method that could be used. And that comes right out of complexity, right? We're basically, mm -hmm. we're, we're using mathematical techniques with fancy names that are very straightforward. Lattice Boltzmann model <laughs> is, right. is the basic model. And it, it's quite straightforward and simple once you look at the empirical basis. So, uh, yeah, so I think that's, that is indeed overall, of course, that's the challenge we need. To, it's hard to make complex uh, common systems work. They can go wrong and uh, we can't have an anthropologist in every one of them. So what can we do to kind of get a hold of the, like in Santa Fe, we call it the coarse graining of the problem, coarse grain it, find out what the basic, the most important parameters are. Mm. There are ways to do that. Okay. Something that I haven't um, seen as much in your work, Steve, so I'm interested in your take on it is, is the role of gender. Mm. I mean, I, I know it's in there, but um, I would just love to hear you talk about, I mean, because obviously there are power asymmetries around the world in terms of what men can do, what women can do. How have you seen this play out in Bali and does it relate to, and how does it relate to water management if it does? Yeah, well, I used to spend months and months in Bali in the house belonging to an old friend up on Mount Batur. Bali has a couple of big mountains. Batur is, is the middle one. There's an enormous crater lake, and it's the home of one of the two supreme deities of Bali, the goddess, the goddess who dwells in the lake. And her brother, the god, is the god in the adjoining volcano. And he's male. And at that temple, they celebrate the powers of caste, which are basically male. It's purusa. It's the powers that descend through patra lines and empower them from their ancestors. But Batra temple is a temple for the goddess. And so even though most of the priests are uh, men, they're chosen by trans mediums who are, they believe, uh, channeling the voice or the choices of the goddess. Hmm. And their rituals are classed by the Balinese as pradana, as female rituals. So they're all about growth and fertility and cooperation, all of those things, very different from the rituals of caste and power and sacred knives and things like that. They're about the things that grow and everybody comes. I mean, that, that great temple has, sends invitations and has, dozens and dozens and dozens of subox come up once a year, bringing the things that have grown in their field, bringing, bringing um, sometimes the archa of their gods, the, you know, the gods are allowed to come to and celebrating the, the female powers of growth and fertility. So mm. Balinese have, it's interesting. I mean, that complementarity is absolutely fundamental to Balinese religion. And it's, funda it's especially fundamental to the subox. Basically farming is, a, is about female power as far as the Balinese are concerned. Hmm. Does that play out in like male-female relations in the society? Does that relate to that? 
Well, uh, I'm gonna go on a quick excursion. I've just been creating some uh, text to accompany beautiful videos created by something called Quantum Temple showing Balinese, uh, trying to bring to, to light with videos the outstanding universal value. Uh, and, and so the story that we're telling with these videos uh, which are now NFTs. They're they're going to be as a collection of things to oh, really? uh, explain okay. why there is a UNESCO World Heritage in Bali. So um, they depict really that relationship of male and female complementarity. And the fundamental idea, deepest idea, <laughs> has to do with cosmological dualism. So we start with a bell, which is the bell, the sound of, of a single bell, which is the beginning and summation of all sounds, but it divides into two, it goes from one to two, roa, the neda. If you have two sounds, and, those, and in between them is the conjunction of those of the opposites, opposites of any type. And that moment of silence is where they come together. So it's very fundamental to Balinese ideas about ritual and how the world is put together and that cosmological you know male female is is probably the most important signifier in that duality hmm. so uh, they've thought a lot about it Balinese have thought a lot about it they, let me say one more thing about that because why do we do this we're, we're creating this collection which will be sold at auction and the proceeds are supposed to go to the people who created artifacts like bells and so forth mm -hmm. so we think the there's a lesson here for people experience. You know, Bali has a surface beauty to it, but uh, why do the Balinese go to so much trouble to create so many representations of art and beauty and symbolism and so forth? It has to do with their idea of, of uh, people's personal journeys to something they call a longo, which is beauty. In English, the only other word is beauty. So that that is a that's like a that's life's journey. That's a struggle that requires purification. It requires a lot of attention to maintain your own equanimity, also to maintain your rice fields. If you don't, if people don't cooperate to maintain the right the irrigation and the buns and so forth in terraced rice fields, just let it go for a couple of weeks. You would transform centuries-old, beautiful, chiseled rice terraces into a muddy hillside. Right, it requires it requires concentrated, cooperative effort, and they need to make sense of that. Right, and so these these cosmological ideas have to do with how people make sense of their relationship to the things they create. I guess that's kind of a long, mm. long diversion, maybe, but uh, uh, hopefully it'll be said better with our videos. <laughs> yeah, no, that's very interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's that. I mean, it leads me to another question: is um, mm -hmm. Just since in the last several years, it sounds like you've made you're continuing to be active in this space. I mean, when was the last time you were in Bali? Unfortunately, it's like two years ago because of COVID. Right. I've been also working in, in Borneo a good deal, but again, mm -hmm. COVID, you know, put an end to travel. Okay. Yeah. Um, I imagine you miss it. Yeah, I do miss it. I'm looking forward to going back. Do you have plans to? Mm -hmm. Soon, yeah. Pardon? Yeah, soon. When? Yeah, well, this project about the methane emissions, that's a good reason to go back. We sure. asked the NSF grant that was being evaluated at the moment. So that would be end of the summer, probably. Okay. Yeah. Um, 
Okay, so another thing I, I do want to talk to you about is, so you mentioned your work with um, Jim Kramer or James Kramer. Yeah. And did the, the two of you met through the Santa Fe Institute. Do I have that right? No, we met at University of Southern California when we were both assistant professors. Oh, okay. Who shared an interest in surfing. Okay. Well, so my underlying question is about something I mentioned earlier in this interview about interdisciplinarity. Yeah. Because again, it's one of these words that is easy to, well, I should say it's easy to like. I think a lot of us um, think it's the direction we should be heading. I've also met some academics that are a little bit spooked by the term because it sounds like you're doing a lot of different things poorly in their minds. In my own view, I've, you know, from an, for someone who's interested in environmental problems, it just seems like if you're not availing yourself of different types of knowledge, you're not, and, and if you're interested in prescriptions even more, you need to avail yourself of different types of knowledge. Otherwise you're gonna say the wrong things. And so again, this is something as much as anything else that I've admired about your work, Steve, is the way you piece together these different types of knowledge and engage with them. And I would just like to ask you how that experience has gone for you. Um, one identity that I project onto a lot of our guests is the idea of a boundary actor, someone who connects different groups. I often, th I think that this is something that's needed in the real world. Right? How do you connect different communities? Well, it's often through the, you know, in social network analysis, it's these, these hubs that bridge these different communities. And I often feel or hypothesize that we need something similar in science, someone who's able to kind of speak the lingo and engage in different communities. So I'm interested in how this has gone for you socially and intellectually. How did this develop this interest and ability to combine these different pieces because I think a lot of the times when we see something there's a lot of kind of interdisciplinarity on paper where a project is supposed to be interdisciplinary but it ends up following more of like what I call and I don't mean this to sound too pejorative like the baton model where it's well the social scientists will do, will social science they'll hand it off to the ecologist who will ecology but there's not a lot of like genuine meshing maybe someone measures some a variable that someone else can put into their database but it feels kind of superficial. And so how has your experience been kind of get, getting past kind of something that feels interdisciplinary only in name, but to actually have it be something that's deep and engaging? Uh, this is exactly what I'm struggling, struggling with right now. Mm. Uh, I'm, I'm just at the moment at the Center for Advanced Study and Behavioral Sciences at Stanford and uh, just created a proposal to reduce systemic risk to the global commons. And the story goes like this. Um, we, there is no plan to manage the global commons. There is no plan. Lynn Ostrom, you know, some of her last work talked about, can we scale up from, from the study of local systems of commons to global? But she didn't really finish it. So we've got this, we have no, we have no plan for managing the global commons and the consequences are terrifying and we can already see the threats to myriad local systems of commons management. So what I've been trying to do is pull together people from different areas, a completely interdisciplinary group to address this question. And our focus is gonna be 
uh, taking models from the reducing systemic risk to the financial system, the global financial system, making small changes to say, can we use that to model systemic risk to the biophysical world? And the idea makes sense in a way because the risk to the financial system are mostly due to risky loans by very large banks. Mm -hmm. The risks to the, to the planet are largely due to the economic activity of small numbers of corporations. So how do we solve that? Well, to solve it, I believe we, my, uh, the argument I'm making is that the, the idea of a global commons actually has to become real. We have to, people have to realize it's not just everything that happens on the planet. I mean, Google at the moment has a planet Earth project and they get petabytes of data and they're just measuring everything. They won't do it. What we need to do is pay attention to those parameters that really are the global commons that we share in common that are utterly vital to us. Hmm. Okay. So we have, I think we really, us commons people have a real opportunity to make a contribution by looking at what I'm calling the adjacent possible, the solutions that do not involve um, waiting for comprehensive environmental laws all over the planet. That's kind of not likely to happen. Whereas commons management, we know works. Okay, now the, the point of this is to pull that together. First, I have to, I've made the case and I am able to now to draw in for example, a climate scientist here who runs the Global Climate Project, who's, who's, who was initially skeptical, but then thought, okay, well, maybe we, we do, the problem really isn't about things that he can measure, like he's looking at methane emissions. The problem is how do we manage that problems like emissions? From where do they come? Uh, social scientists came in. The director of the center here said she would like to be part of it too. It, the, uh, trying to, to create, foster the coalescence of an interdisciplinary team, which would also involve computer science people and remote sensing people, because now we've got these, I'll, I'll, I won't run this too long, but I, let me just finish this idea. So how do we do it? Well, uh, there's now a new generation of remote sensing technology. We were using it in Bali to monitor the you know, self-organizing systems in, of Balinese rise terraces. Well, they've got satellites now. It's a plan, group called Planet Labs that, um, monitors the planet and Maxar is even more powerful. I mean, they have even more satellites and more people providing, doing analysis and then providing it as sort of subscription-based data feeds to their, to their customers. So our idea is with that technology, we can look at, you know, you can identify where these major threats to the biosphere and then ask the question, okay, let's, we need basically two numbers. What is the incremental systemic risk to the biosphere from that particular methane emission or road or whatever. And what are, what's its cost benefit, right? What, is, what, what, what are the alternative? You create a shadow price and say, what's the price of this and are there alternatives? So in the end, what we hope is we can provide that information like app-like information to portfolio managers, to basically everybody to say, well, here, here global commons is real. We can, we can measure it, we can observe it. It's not everything, it's a, it's, but it's the things that really matter that we need to pay attention to. That's a fundamentally interdisciplinary question. And that it provides a way, if we think of it in that way, then it can provide a way to think about a solution because actually all of the monitoring technology exists. The analytical techniques 
are available to us. They're not, the math isn't really very complicated, but it's the commons, it's, you know, it's articulating idea that, it, that this is a commons management system. Mm. Right? That's what we're lacking. So, um, so yeah, so I think the, the need for interdisciplinarity, especially in commons research is particularly acute, mm. particularly acute. And because, as you just said, we have we kind of intrinsically have to look at both the social and environmental side of these questions, right? It's the only way to understand how common systems work. That's good because that that makes us kind of pre-qualified, right, to tackle questions like this. And I think we need to. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. It reminds me of um, so I recently had Simon Levin on the podcast, and he oh. co-authored this nature paper ecology for bankers, which got some notoriety around the financial collapse, because it, I mean, it made arguments that remind me of what you were talking about, that, you know, mm -hmm. there's something we need to think about banking as an ecosystem and as having resilience or vulnerabilities the same way an ecosystem would have based on modularity, based on connectivity, et cetera. And that makes a lot of sense to me. Mm -hmm. um, and the other thing you mentioned that is interesting is, you know, at once this project is taking advantage of new technologies and new data streams, but something you said is, um, you know, you said Google is producing these terabytes of information. At the same time, we're not gonna just data our way out of these problems. We're right. not just gonna technologize our way out of these problems. So yeah, we need new data and we need new technology, but that's, that's not, it needs to be the right data and the right technology. Exactly, it, it's fun. Managing our poor old planet is fundamentally a, a question of governance, of management. It's a social science question. And in particular, it's a commons issue. Mm. It, it's either, it's either a, an issue that will be solved by national governments, by regulations, but after all, there are like 200 of them, and we need a lot of regulations. Or it, will be, it could be solved in the way that common systems solve them, which is informally. It's not it, systems of common property that work are not government bureaucracies, right? They're managed by the stakeholders. I really think that's that's where our hope for solutions lie. Mm. So in this project, Steve, are you are you this boundary actor, kind of getting everyone in the same room and getting them to talk to each other? Um, there's yes. two, the, two, two, two ways to think about this that occur to me. One is that I think I just find it. There's a lot of in-group, out-group dynamics, I think, across disciplines, right? Like just as way in the real world, you have in-groups and out-groups and you have conflicts across ethno-linguistic barriers. I think you have a lot of these same issues in science and academia. Mm -hmm. And I think it can create this challenge of kind of mutual dismissiveness of not, and kind of out, a, lot, a lot of things are happening. There's also out-group homogeneity bias where, oh, all ecologists are the same or all social scientists are the same. And a way a good friend of mine puts it is that we don't really understand the challenges that other colleagues face in answering their research questions. So we judge them by our own criteria mm -hmm. that we developed without facing their challenges. Yeah. So how do we, it feels like there's this a big, there's a big activation energy that needs to be reached to get past those challenges. How has that been going for you? Well, Thank heaven there's the Santa Fe Institute. I mean, this, this really got started, I think, with Santa Fe. Now that it turns out it works to bring people together in an interdisciplinary framework and have them listen to each other. And the reason why I think it works is, let me take Santa Fe for an example. People show up at the Santa Fe Institute because there's some 
working group going on. There's some, some question being explored and they'll be invited to give a talk, okay? And the talk needs to be, to be aimed at an interdisciplinary audience. And the people who give this, you sort of know that when you, when you give your talk or you participate, if you can actually strike a chord with people and show the, other, the relevance of your work beyond your own narrow, you know, beyond your own field, but more, more broadly, what does it actually mean? You do that, then you're gonna be invited back because everybody's facing with that, faced with that constraint. We'd like to hear good, new, interesting information. We'd like to collaborate with people who are working on interesting projects to which we can contribute. That dynamic works, I think. It needs to be not spectator sport, but am I gonna hear something interesting about networks, for example, you know, a lot of the network stuff was invented in Santa Fe. And that was the beautiful example because it, it easily goes from molecular biology to social phenomenon to, you know, all sorts of things. Those kinds of ideas can easily spread. But the way they spread, I think, is people are just encouraged. You need a, you need a, uh, a venue in which the, that those kinds of discussions can happen where people are allowed to ask questions and they're allowed to take hesitant steps and ask, how could I do this? How, does it, how might it be? applicable to my problem. When you set up those dynamics, it, it works. Everybody's curious, I think. Mm. Uh, so that, I think, Santa Fe's, that model has has been spreading. And there, I just ran a complexity institute in Singapore that worked like a charm. There's a good one in Vienna. Uh, right now, I'm Scott Page at Michigan. There's, a, there's one there. I mean, they're, they're kind of spreading. And, and the dynamics that I'm describing seem to work. Mm. So I'm a I'm an advocate. I think hmm. the more the better, right? So are you trying to kind of apply a bit of that model to your time at Stanford? It, well, I'm actually too busy to, I can't, I, I hope Stanford goes in this direction with their new sustainability school, but I'm right. also working with these hunter gatherers in Borneo and I'm working on the Bali project and I'm trying to do something about this systemic risk problem. So that, that occupies my you time. You got a full plate, fair enough. <laughs> okay, Steve, this has been... Uh, predictably terrific. Are there um, are there threads that you want to tie up? Uh, topics that we started or didn't get to that you want to make sure that we mention uh, before we conclude the interview? I want to say one thing because I've been working hard with uh, hunter gatherers whom we discovered in Borneo. I mean, who are still nomadic hunter gatherers? Discovered. I mean, they, we came into contact with them and learned from them that. They have a system of communication with other groups of hunter-gatherers, most of whom are now settled in permanent communities, but they use message sticks to, mm. to keep each other abreast of resources and share messages. Message sticks go in the ground and you never know who's going to read it, but it's a system of cooperation and we find the same symbols right across Borneo. You know, hundreds of kilometers across really tough jungle, different ethnic linguistic groups using these message sticks. So, just published a paper now in Evolutionary Human Sciences. And that I think is a wonderful example. To me, it's like Bali in that it's a polycentric system of commons management. They're, they're we, we, working with, with the Nature Conservancy, you call them forest stewards, and they are forest stewards, but it's even though they live in small communities, face to face communities, they connect with each other. And mm. uh, just like in Bali with the Suvox. Mm -hmm. So I, that, that's deeply interesting to me now as an example of um, the emergence of polycentric commons management, which is kind of our problem now. 
Mm-hmm. You need to know that it isn't, you can't, we can do more with, with the systems of commons management that we're familiar with than just manage single resources. Mm. So I, I, hold, I, I hope that people will look at that, pursue that question and see what can we learn about how, as you mentioned earlier, actually, systems involving management of different parameters, right? Mm-hmm. That are more diverse and that may be polycentric. That's clearly crucially important for us to think about now because that those kinds of systems work. I mean, the one in Borneo, we take the genetics of the people we're looking at. It's certainly for centuries and maybe longer that they've had this system. We can't prove that the message sticks last that long, but we can show that the same message sticks are found separated by vast distances by Mm. people who have been in place for thousands of years. So that's, you know, that's heartening and we can learn from that. We can learn from that. I mean, I can see how you would have a similar set of questions about that as you did about Bali. It's, it's how, how is this altruistic behavior scaling? Why would someone leave a stick out for someone that's essentially it's a public good for them. Exactly. And, and yes, isn't that the question? And I've been working with John Miller, a, a game theorist on saying it's, it's, a, it's a different model for cooperation. In the, when, the, when the hunter-gatherers are settled in permanent villages, as almost all of them are now, then the dynamic shift, it goes back mm. to demand sharing and policing free riders and keeping track of gifts. But in the forest now, the people that I was working with, you know, who move from rock shelter to rock shelter continuously, we, anyway, they use that system to tell each other, for example, a warning about don't come to this, to, the, to where we are now because we have disease. We were warned away. Mm. Uh, or if, if we've gone this way, it'll take a couple of days to get there. There are fruiting trees that we understand are available. So they're sharing that information. Yeah. And what was astonishing to me and wonderful is to learn that it's not just this small group of people. The ethnographic literature shows that it was once common. Once That's common. extraordinary. Has what one final question? This sedentarization is that is that being is that a forced top-down sedentarization like we hear having happened around the world? Well, it, it, it's not not really. It's kind of it's sort of benevolent. I mean, there, but it, okay. but uh, because they have a guilty conscience about the oil palms and the logging that it made things so difficult. So the various. I mean, Borneo includes, of course, Malaysian Borneo and Sabah. So uh, there. There are pros and cons. It's complicated. Pros okay, and cons to, to resettlement. Uh, the Nature Conservancy is is working hard to accentuate the pros, mm. medical availability, more stable food. But the problem is, of course, the oil palm. You know, the expansion of oil palms and and logging is is one of the great tragedies of our time. Right, mm. losing so yeah, much yeah. of the biodiversity all the time. Yeah. Yeah, that is one of the challenges in being in this space is kind of managing your own emotions and feelings as you contemplate. I mean, a lot of the data that we deal with is bad news. Yeah. So it's like, how do you manage your own uh, sense of place and emotional state as you engage with this? People sometimes ask me that, like, how, how, do, you, how do you manage all that? And I'm not, I mean, I'm not sure there's like a great answer to it for me. Sometimes it's denial, frankly. Um, but I think, I mean, just to tie this back again to like the case you talked about, 
when students ask me this question, for me, a lot of times the answer is what people are doing in a specific time and place to make things better. Mm. I've led an off-campus program in the past, and one of my favorite parts about experiential education off-campus is that you, you avail yourself of those opportunities to actually meet people in the world who are trying to do stuff. Because I think we always assume, and this guy's, so I'll try to tie a nice little bow on this too, right? And that's, that's okay. about polycentricity, right? I feel like a lot of the challenges that students deal with is it's kind of an all or nothing mentality. Like we need to change things in Washington. And there's so much media and publication bias about what's happening at the national level that particularly in the United States, which is a federation where a lot of policy happens, critical policy happens at the state level and down that just we, we are, we're not aware of. And so to me, one of the biggest lessons is it is about polycentricity. We need to be thinking about how to make a polycentric how to make a polycentric system work, but also that means that we should be paying attention to what's happening in time and place yes. and not yeah. just think about, okay, like if we don't get Biden's policy passed, then like everything's going to be a disaster. It's like, well, no, all of this, there's a sea of activity happening that's invisible to us on the New York Times website or lots of major media outlets because they don't pay attention to it nearly as much. Mm -hmm. One last thought, which is one other avenue just triggered by what you said, gold standard mm. care for common systems. Gold standard care works in medicine, mm. right? It's self-organizing and it's what you want your doctor to be practicing and it's what the insurance company will, will, will enforce for him and his hospital. We could have gold standard care for commons resources, which is done outside the government framework, right? It's, it's a self-organizing thing by the experts. So it's just another right. model. There are models like that. We need, we need, I think, to explore other possible models for managing, you know, solving collective action problems, managing the commons. Thanks for listening, everyone. As always, you can find more episodes as well as entries in our blog on our website, incommonpodcast.org. The Incoming Podcast is the official podcast of the International Association for the Study of the Commons, or IASC.